Good morning. Our scripture today comes from Acts 2, 42 through 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. May be seated. Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> uh, what church do you go to? Okay. That was a rhetorical question. Many of you have been asked that question, probably on a number of occasions, not counting just now. Maybe uh, even this past week you're talking to someone and it kind of comes up regular when you're in the community and maybe at the gym or, or at the grocery store or at the coffee shop and they're like, hey, oh, wh what church do you go to? And my responses from 1971 to the present would be, and the first two are in Missouri, uh, Swope Park Baptist Church till I was about 18, and then Raytown Foursquare Church, and if you don't know, Foursquare is a Pentecostal denomination, that was the next few years. And then I moved to California, and so five since California, Pasadena Foursquare Church, Plaza Bible Church of Orange, which was also Foursquare, the EV Free of Laguna Hills, took a little turn there, Restoration Church of Long Beach, which my wife and I helped plant here in Long Beach, or there in Long Beach, and then Grace Community Church of Seal Beach for about the last four years. So seven different churches over the 48 years of my life. And as you might imagine, there were some uh, differences between the various churches. I'll just mention one, the worship service experience. <clears throat> Maybe you've been in one church your whole life, but let me tell you, worship in a Southern Baptist church in Missouri is not the same as worship in a Pentecostal church in Southern California. Very different experiences. A lot of other experience, or differences could be named and and if you've done a little bit of church jumping or tradition jumping, you could say the same thing. But for all the differences, uh, there were a lot of similarities too. Uh, they all taught the Bible. They all loved Jesus. They all loved their food too, they all, especially the Southern Baptists. They all had meaningful ministries. And one other uh, similarity that springs to mind is that not one of them has endured persecution. I don't remember one person from any of those churches submitting a prayer request for a job or a home or a doctor because their faith in Jesus got them fired, kicked out, or beat. Now, maybe you've met someone in the course of your life, your experience where that has been true. Maybe you've experienced that. But I would say it's not the common experience of us gathered here. But for a lot of Christians in the world today, and we saw this in the video, that's exactly what they endure. They give so much. They give everything to follow Jesus. And in that sense, the persecuted church is much more like the early church than we are. We have a lot to learn from them. 
In the book of Acts, which is our next uh, stop on our Year of the Bible tour, uh, we have a history of the Christian church where we see the spread of the gospel of Jesus as well as the opposition that is starting to mount against it. And the early part of that history in Acts 2, we have a record of the coming of the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, he comes in power, he fills the people of God, a new community is formed, and it's the birth of the church. And that church, I would say the church all the time, everywhere, has one primary task, and that is to testify to Jesus. That's what we learn in Acts 1, and if you've been reading along the year of the Bible, you've, you've uh, read this recently. Uh, Jesus says to his disciples before he returns to heaven in Acts 1, verse 4, wait for the Holy Spirit, and then verse 8 tells us why, but you will receive the, the power, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the end of the earth. You'll receive the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. What do witnesses do when they're called upon? They testify. And in the church's case, our testimony is to be all about Jesus. And we'll say this, the church, any church, if it's an actual church, is a Jesus-testifying church. You might be Baptist or Pentecostal, Anglican, Methodist, Charis. You might be Midwest, Southern California, Africa, or Asia. There's a lot of diversity in God's big worldwide 2,000-year-old family, and, and that's great. We should thank God for the diversity. Can you imagine if we were all like us, every Christian in the world, just like us? How boring. But if you aren't a Jesus-testifying church, you're not a church, even if you have the word church in your name. That's the one thing you must have in common with all others in the family of God. The early church, as we uh, heard about them in Acts 2, 42 to 47, they were a Jesus-testifying church. And think about how incredible that would have been for them at that time. Jesus, just three months ago, would have been crucified. They're giving testimony to him in the same city where that happened. Those who were in power then are still in power now. That's the setting for them being Jesus followers. It was not an easy thing to follow Jesus 90 days after his crucifixion. It was costly. It was dangerous. And that ought to make us think more deeply about the church's role in society. What are we to this community here? What is the church in the world? See, it's not enough for the church to be a friendly bunch of people who come alongside nonprofits and participate in Seal Beach community events. You know why that's not enough? Because you don't need Jesus for any of that. Now, we should be a friendly bunch of people. We should come alongside nonprofits. We should participate in Seal Beach events, but we are to be far more. In our words, in our works, people need to see and hear something very different than what they're used to. We are to be different. When people encounter the church, they're to experience a different kind of community than every other community they know or are a part of. Our love, our values, our relationships, our agenda, how we speak, how we spend, how we respond to trials, what we put on social media. God, help. 
all of it is to be different. It's to, to tell a different story. In his great book, The Pastor, a memoir, uh, the late Eugene Peterson writes, the church is a colony of heaven in the country of death. That's a different way to see the church, isn't it? Let's put that on the sign out front. Come join us. We're a colony of heaven in the country of death. Welcome lunch, 1230. <laughs> if we are to be faithful, faithful as that colony in the country of death, people will hear a very clear message from us, and it'll have two things. One, there's something wrong, something wrong with humanity, something wrong with the world and their system. Things are not the way they ought to be. That's very clear in all of our experience, right? But the second thing they'll hear from us is that there's hope, hope that things can be made right, hope that people can be made right. There's hope in the gospel. Death is present, but life has come, and so there's hope. The few verses we heard read, we have six marks of a Jesus-testifying church that we'll go through in the outline if you want to follow along that way. This is what it looks like to be witnesses of Jesus. And the early church was far from perfect, but they were a living example of this. This is the first time that I ever remember using fill-in-the-blank in the outline. Um, and it just seemed like the thing to do. Right, right, that was it. That was a verbal fill in the blank, just to get us going. Seemed like the right thing to do. Okay, the first mark of a Jesus testifying church, they were centered on the gospel. Look at verse 42 again. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So the apostles' teaching refers to what Jesus taught them during his ministry before and after his resurrection. And the apostles like, uh, Peter, James, and John, they got a crash course in theology about the Messiah from the Messiah. Jesus was their teacher. The gospel was their course content. What an incredible degree program, right? That word gospel means good news, and probably the best and most complete definition we have in the New Testament is from Paul, and you don't have to turn there, but I'll read this from 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 5. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared. And so, in a nutshell, the gospel... The, the apostles' teaching, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ in accordance with the scriptures. So this is really important that we understand that's what the gospel is, what Jesus has done. So it's not advice about what we need to do. That's not the gospel. Not about what you need to do. It's news about something that Jesus has already done for you. And all of what he did, Paul says, was accordance with, in accordance with the scriptures. That means it wasn't a new story, not something new that just popped up on the horizon in the first century, but a continuation of an ongoing story. What story? Those nine months in the Old Testament we just read through and preached through. 
Jesus came to fulfill the scriptures, to finish or complete the story. What story? Humanity's story. A story that had a beautiful beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. You remember that, right? God's people, under God's rule, in God's place, the garden. Beautiful beginning, tragically wrong by chapter 3. It turned. Sin had come in and spoiled God's good start. Jesus came then later on in the story to turn that tragedy into victory. To make a horror story a saving story instead. How did he do it? By his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead. He did it by the gospel. And if anyone's received that gospel, if you're standing in it, if you're holding fast to it, then your sin has been paid for. Here's the Southern Baptist in me. I said, all your sin has been paid for. Death for you has been defeated. And a home with God like Adam and Eve once had has been purchased and is waiting to be delivered to you. The new heaven and the new earth coming down out of heaven for you to dwell in forever. Humanity's story has been turned into a saving one because the long-awaited Messiah, Jesus, the world's true king, has come and has been successful where Adam failed, where Israel failed, where you failed, where I failed. And that's good news. This gospel, Jesus' work on our behalf, that's what shapes the people of God. That's what shaped the early church. That's what shapes us, the gospel. And friends, we're all being shaped by something, aren't we? If not the gospel, if that's not the most powerful influence in your life, it's the next most powerful thing, whatever that is. A particular worldview, some sort of social pressure, a relationship, an addiction. There are a lot of competing influences that are more than happy to receive your devotion, your time, your money, your life. They promise life, but they deliver death. They are sorry substitutes for the real thing. Right? But unless we're devoted to the gospel, we will be devoted to one or another of these things. The, the, these pimps is what they are. They just want to use you and cast you aside. Don't be devoted to them. Be devoted, wholly committed to the gospel. The first Christians were, they were gospel-centered, and that gospel produced something, fellowship. That's the second mark of a Jesus-testifying church. They were focused in their fellowship. So verse 42 again, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Fellowship in the Bible is a, a word called koinonia. Maybe that sounds familiar to you. It has to do with having things in common. It's a deepening friendship built around common goals and priorities. There's an intimacy with real fellowship and accountability. It's not shallow. It's, it's a deep sense of responsibility to care for one another, support one another. This shows up in the form of sharing. And this church, they were very intentional, very focused in their fellowship. They were sharing. What were they sharing? The first thing that comes up, also in verse 42, is meals. They shared meals. They broke bread together. The breaking of bread was uh, typically the initial act of any normal meal in their culture. But because of Jesus, that simple act had taken on special significance. 
Now when they broke bread, they remembered Jesus' body was broken for them, just like we do here this morning. And that's what binds them together at the table. He's the source of their intimate fellowship that they now experience with one another. Jesus had taken things as common as bread and wine and infused them with incredible significance. And that's what they now shared when they went to the table to share that meal. In addition to sharing meals, they shared resources. We see that in verses 44 and 45. The Christians are selling their possessions, giving to all those who had need. Now, let me point out that this act of selling was voluntary, but the Lord had laid it on their hearts to do this, to give what they had so that those who had nothing would have something. They recognized something, I think, this early church that that we have a challenge with, our high value on private property ownership and individual rights. That gets in the way of us seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ having a claim, not only to our love and time, but also our resources. That what's mine is not just mine. Not if God's your father and these are brothers and sisters in your family. It can't be. What's mine is not just mine, but it's to be shared. That was loud. Again, this was voluntary, but the incredible thing about it is that they were willing to do it. They were glad to do it, and that's because they knew how much Jesus had given to them, so they were happy to give to others. I know that many people get uncomfortable when the topic turns to money and possessions. After all, you've worked hard to get what you have. The point here in Acts 2 isn't that you must submit all your finances to the church or you don't own anything yourself. Remember what the the apostles said to Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5? As long as you owned it, it belonged to you. You could do whatever you want with it. The problem was that they, they sold it and then they lied about how much they were giving. So it's not that we don't own anything. It's deeper than that. It's a heart question. And, and it's this. Do you have a bias toward keeping or a bias toward giving? Which way do you lean? Some in the early church uh, no doubt had possessions and land and maybe other homes in addition to their primary residence. They sold these to provide for the needs of the community. Uh, verse 46 does tell us they're still meeting in homes, so they hadn't sold everything. But whatever could be liquidated was on the table, up for consideration. God, what do you want me to do with this? Keep it? Use it for now or give it away? Sell it? When you live that way, when you live with an open hand and an open heart, it takes real wisdom to answer the questions that come up, like how much do I give? How much do I keep? How much do I give? That... that, have somebody in, in your life ask you, they say, oh, I know you've been a Christian for a while, I'm new to this thing, how much do I keep, how much do I give? It's a tough question. How do I weigh my needs and the needs of my family with the needs of others, right? Saving up for the kids' college, saving up for their cars, and then you see this need right here that's immediate, and you have the resources in your savings account, and you could go and get some money and give it. Do you do that? If you do it for them, do you do it for them? Do you do it for them? Do you do it for them? It takes wisdom, doesn't it? What does good stewardship look like in my life? 
These are great questions, tough questions. They need to be asked, but they only come up when we see our lives and resources as things to be shared. They don't come up for the hoarder. The hoarder doesn't struggle with their giving. They just don't. But you know what? They'll never know the joy of meeting someone else's need. They'll, they'll never have that, that sense that God has used them to answer someone else's prayer. We don't want to miss out on that. There's something else going on here in this Acts 2 community that is as impressive as people selling their possessions, I think. It's that they actually know each other's needs, right? They're close enough to each other. They have enough real fellowship to actually know who needs what. They shared meals. They shared resources. They also shared their lives. We read that they went to the temple together. They gathered together in homes. They were together. It wasn't just giving their money and providing resources for those in need because we can do that from our couch online. It was sharing their very lives, spending time with each other, knowing each other outside of Sundays, we could say. This is regular and ongoing, uh, not just kind of bumping into each other at Trader Joe's, as fun as that is when we get to see each other out in the, the community, wherever you shop, I don't know. What's Trader Joe's a bougie reference? Whole Foods. <laughs> the 99 cent store, let's be honest. That's where we meet, isn't it? I know. But there was an intentionality in their fellowship. They planned to be together. They planned it on their calendars to be together, to share meals, share resources, share their lives. It was a beautiful picture of what the church is supposed to be. And and I, I can't help but think of some of our life groups. There is really rich fellowship outside of life groups. You don't have to be in a life group to experience Wonderful, sweet fellowship like we're reading about today. But life groups are a great place for you to experience that. People that know you, love you, are with you, especially when you really need it. I think of a a couple specific situations just this last month or two at our church where one of our members lost his spouse, another one was having a surgery, and uh, the people in their group gathered around... uh, a phone and a conference call from their life group to pray for this couple who the, the husband was having a surgery the night before he had that surgery. And in the other case, where the, the gentleman lost his spouse, she died suddenly. And do you know who the first people he called were? Was his life group. And they rushed over to the house to be with him. And they've been with him every step of the way since. To be the hands and feet of Jesus to someone in their dark hour is a special gift. To receive that from others when when life is just overwhelming you, that is so sweet too. The church in Acts 2, those Christians, they were focused in their fellowship. But this sort of selfless, others first posture doesn't just happen It came as a result of God's power at work in them. That's the third thing we see in the early church, this Jesus-testifying church. They were empowered by the Spirit. Verse 43 says, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now we might ask, why the display of power? Isn't the word of the gospel enough? Isn't the teaching of the apostles enough? Why miracles, signs, and wonders? 
Uh, do you remember a, a few weeks ago when we, uh, Bob preached on Mark 2 when the paralytic was healed? Right? Jesus said to the crippled man, the one who came through the roof, he said to him, my son, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders called Jesus a blasphemer, saying only God can forgive sins. I think Jesus was like, yeah, that's my point. <laughs> Jesus replied, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In other words, that you may see with your eyes the power I have to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home, and he did. The healing was a sign. It was proof that Jesus could actually forgive sins. The power of God validated his words. In a similar way, the apostles' teaching was validated. It was shown to be true and trustworthy. There, there was some kind of external proof by the miracles, signs and wonders being done by the apostles. I think sometimes our changed lives are proof like that too, evidence that God is at work. The power of God is a distinguishing mark of the people of God, and His power is as needed today as it was then. So the gospel at the center, genuine fellowship is experienced, the power of God at work in the people of God, and that also produced something, something we talked about last week at the end of uh, John 15, Justin's sermon, and that was joy. Joy. A Jesus-testifying church will be full of joy. Despite the trials and challenges that come with living for Jesus in a world that recently killed him, these Christians had a lot of joy. They had a joy that nothing could, could take that from them, that kind of a joy. Do you have that kind of a joy? Nothing can, can rob that from you? No circumstance, no relationship, no sin can take your joy from you? Because we need that, people, don't we? We need the joy of the Lord. Verse 46, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. Imagine not knowing where your next meal is going to come from, and someone in your congregation gives you a week's worth of groceries. That's happened to some of you. I know it has. I've heard your stories. What if you found out that those who provided for you sold some of their possessions to be able to do that for you? I think that would encourage joy in you, wouldn't it? Because our hearts are bent. Maybe the first thing that comes up for us is, oh, I've got to pay them back as soon as possible. That might come up. But if we'll just receive the gift, if we'll be humble, Joy will rise up in our hearts when someone provides for us like that. And God will be praised. The early church, their fellowship was sincere and sacrificial, and it couldn't help but lead to joy, to rejoicing. They were gospel-centered, fellowship-focused, spirit-empowered, thirsty, joyful people. And that got the attention of their neighbors. The fifth mark of a Jesus-testifying church, they were compelling to their neighbors. Verse 47 says they had favor with all the people. Uh, people would say, there's something about those Christians. They're weird, but good weird. Gospel weird. Let's, let's roll with that, gospel weird. Do you want to grab the attention of others do you want to be compelling to your neighbors and, and, and family members? Here's a few things. Be a moral person. 
right away you're gonna, some are going to sit up and take note. Give away a significant portion of your income and time. Forgive those who hurt you before they ask. Stake all your hopes on a dying and rising Messiah. And then get together with a group of people who, who believe in, and live that same way. And guess what? You're weird. You're weird. Grace Community Church, we're weird. Welcome lunch, 1230. <laughs> but we're good weird. And God will use that to provide opportunities for us to share why it is we are this way. And he can point others to himself through us. They were compelling to their neighbors, and that resulted in a final mark of a Jesus-testifying church. They were adding to their numbers. Verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. See, when the church is centered on the gospel, living like Jesus, powerful things do happen. It's the Lord who saves. It's the Lord who adds to his church, but it's through the church that he brings this about. Our sharing the story of Jesus our loving each other and serving our city, our living the kinds of lives that prompt questions from others. Do we live the kinds of lives that prompt questions from others? Why are you that way? When people experience a colony of heaven in the kingdom of death, they'll get a sense of what it's like to live under God's rule, his good and gracious rule, what it's like to be his and that's something different. That's something better, isn't it? It's not easy, but it's so worth it. Just ask any of the people that were interviewed for that video. Is it worth it? On the back of your bulletin, there's a, a quote. I want to kind of wrap it up with this. It's uh, Why the World Needs the Church from these two great authors, Stanley Hauerwas and William Willimon. And afterwards, I won't, I won't say it again, but I think you'll probably be thinking, these guys aren't playing at church, because they're not. From a Christian point of view, the world needs the church not to help the world run more smoothly or to make the world a better and safer place for Christians to live. Rather, the world needs the church, because without the church, the world doesn't know who it is. The way for the world to know that it needs redeeming, that it's broken and fallen, is for the church to enable the world to strike hard against something which is an alternative to what the world offers. The church is God's means of a major offensive against the world for the world. So think about that a few times this afternoon and, and let that inspire some things in your, your mind and questions that come up, and then let's talk later. The church is God's means of a major offensive against the world for the world. Well, I hope this morning wouldn't uh, discourage you, but it would encourage you where you're living this way, where your life is a Jesus-testifying life, and how our church is, is doing the same, but also that we would hear God speak to us, and we would let it highlight perhaps some of the things that are missing from our life, our individual lives, our church life, and we'd take advantage of all the gifts God has given for us to be a Jesus-testifying church, his word, his spirit, his grace, this church, and by God, we'd grow more into who we already are. We would mature in Christ.
Well, we might ask, well, how do we know if we're on track? What, what are some indications? Uh, there's probably a lot that could be said, but I have three indications that we're on the right track to being a, a Jesus. I shouldn't say to being. We are a Jesus-testifying church, but indications that we're on that path. How about that? One, our pronouns will lean toward the plural. So our language is going to include more we, us, and our versus I, me, and mine. We might need someone other than us to help us understand how that's working for us. Our pronouns lean toward the plural. The way we see church will be changed. More like family. That's how we'll see the church. More like a family where sacrifice and sharing for each other is normal. At least that's what a healthy family does. Less like the Lions Club. We're a church. That's different. Then finally, our testimony in the world will be powerful. So verse 47 again. They had favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May God make that so here in this place. Amen. Let's pray as we uh, prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. God, we thank you for your word and your spirit and this church. We pray that you would help us to become uh, what we already are, a Jesus-testifying church. Give us favor, Lord, near and far, and add to our number those who are being saved. Do this for us, we ask in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we're called by God to be a Jesus-testifying church, and this table does exactly that. It testifies to Jesus and the grace of God that comes through him. His willing death, his victorious resurrection, his glorious return, which is our hope. It's all pictured here. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord has prepared this table for all who love him.